so welcome everyone. Um, this is our 337th uh, study in the book of Acts. Um, we're in Acts 13 still, um, and we're picking up in uh, verse 13. Um, we do have a brief PowerPoint, which I, if we can't run it, no worries. If we can, um, awesome. Thank you. So I just let you know when we want to slide up. Um, so we are, we are looking in the book of Acts. Um, if we had, a, had the Bibles like I had growing up, there were a lot of interesting maps in the back that you could follow along Paul's journey or maybe think there were sailing races or something in the back of the Bible. Um, but I have one on one of the next slides, so you don't have to Google one and get lost looking at Google Earth footage of the Middle East. So do you want to pull up the first slide? So we, we pick up the story after Paul and Barnabas leave Paphos and to sail to Perga in Pamphylia. Um, they, they were in Cyprus, remember, and then they kind of do a quick sail over and then they bounce around a little bit, and now they move inland into Pisidian Antioch. Um, they're bringing this new message into an area that was heavily influenced by Judaism, but wasn't necessarily in, ancestrally Jewish. Um, the, the Pisidian Antioch sits on a plateau, and it looks like our slide is coming up, uh, sits on a plateau. Um, you've got the mountains to the north, you have the ocean to the south, and we can bump ahead. Okay, so there, there's our little map. We'll just take a look at that quickly. We got Cyprus, Paphos, then they sail right in here to Perga. Um, right in, if you can, well, you can't see my mouse, but they sail in, uh, into Perga, and then they hike up into uh, Antioch, which is partway in between, uh, say, Perga and the Black Sea, if you're lost. Uh, if you're lost, don't worry, you're not taking the journey. Uh, pull up the next slide if you could. Uh, all right, so if you look at this picture, you've got an idea. You've got these huge mountains in the background. And in the foreground, obviously, you saw from the map, we have the ocean or the, the, the sea. I think it's the Mediterranean. Anyway, um, it's a very uh, strategic place. And anyone coming from the south would have been seen... Um, as they, they came over the water, anyone coming from the north had to make it over the mountains. And so there was, it was a strategic place. It was also a trade route and route to Galatia and the Black Sea. So the people that settled there, um, it was settled, I believe, by the emperor after Alexander the Great. I don't have his name. Um, but it was settled in large part by people who wanted to get out of the big Roman cities. Um, think of like our current migration patterns, people leaving New York and Boston and L.A. to go to the more remote areas, Maine, Carolinas, Montana, Vermont. Um, people wanted to know that they could have some of the cu cultural comforts, but not the noise and stress of the city. Um, so move on to the next slide. So just keep that in, in the background. So it's Roman controlled. Uh, it's military importance. Most of the Jews were Greek or Roman converts or proselytes. Um, and then pull up one more slide. Okay, so this is, this is where we're going to spend the majority of our time. And Liz, if you think it's better to have a picture up as we talk through this, 
uh, after people take a look at those, feel free. Uh, so I'm going to read and paraphrase the text. It's a long text. It's 13 through, I think, 52. Um, but we, we've already given the opening. They, they left uh, uh, Paphos. They sailed um, to Perga. Then they started up for Antioch. That gets us down through... Um, Verse 16, uh, they're invited into the temple. And actually that picture of um, the mountains in that ruins, that is said to be the temple that they would have spoken at. That's the ruins of the temple. Um, and they, they go to the they go to this temple on the Sabbath, or I'm sorry, the synagogue. They sit, uh, sit down. And after reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders kind of gave them the nod and said, brothers, you know, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. So standing up, and this is from Acts uh, 13, 16, Paul motioned with his hand and said, fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of, the con- out of that country 40 years. He endured their conduct in the wilderness. And we're going to skip a bunch. He talks about Saul and David, and then he talks about from David's descendants, uh, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. We're in verse uh, 23. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. And any is uh, all of this would have really resonated with the Jewish people of the day. It would have been especially, especially interesting for the people who were converts. Because um, Paul was known as a, as a uh, kind of the religious Jewish elite who made the switch over. Uh, so the people of um, 23, 24, hang on uh, one second, uh, 26, fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath, uh, though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And they carried out all, all that was written about him. They took him down from the cross, laid him in the tomb, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days, he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. Um, he pulls a couple quotes from Psalms. Um, and towards the end, uh, let's see, it says, therefore, friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. So he kind of takes this big meta narrative and he brings it right down to them in the audience. This is proclaimed to you that through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. And again, they were living the law of Moses right now while he's talking to them. They're in the synagogue. The animals are outside uh, for slaughter. Uh, They're in the middle of the law of Moses as he's talking. So he says, take care of what the prophets have said that doesn't, um, does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. So uh, the end of his, his sermon, let's say, and it says, as Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about those things on the next Sabbath. Great. Our, our point stuck. It landed. And when the congregation was dismissed, Many of the Jews and the devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas and talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. So if, if you're a, a missionary 
or a pastor and you have that kind of end to your your Sunday where you're getting invited out to lunch and everyone's competing over where to take you, um, you've, done, you've, you've, you've hit your mark. You've done a pretty good job. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered. Amazing to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and they began to contradict what Paul was saying. These are the same Jews, by the way, that a week before were after him after the service, like, hey, this is great. This is excellent. We need to hear more of this. But it says that they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse upon him. Then Paul and Barnabas answered boldly, we had to speak the, the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. The very pointed statement at them. When the Gentiles heard this, so imagine a large crowd, they were glad and they honored the word of the Lord and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Kind of the end of the scene is the word of the Lord spread through the whole region, but the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from the region. They sent them north, I believe, uh, to those mountains. So they shook their dust off. This is the uh, Paul and Barnabas shook the dust off their feet as a warning to them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. All right. So there are two primary points that I want to look at in this narrative, and they dovetail. Uh, the first is what Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas's story is. And how that's similar and different maybe to yours and mine. It's also, I want you to think more directly, how do they tell their story? The second is what on earth happened between the first day at the temple and their second week to cause the people to turn. And it was all going so well. So, so here we go. The, the first point is our story in relation to their story. Uh, in Christian circles, a common thing for people to do over maybe coffee or, uh, you know, you're going to get together for a lunch date with someone you haven't met before you're up for a drink, um, is to ask someone along the lines of, so what, when or how or why did you start following Jesus? Like, tell, tell me your story. Um, rarely does this response start with, well, about 3,500 years ago, there was a Bedouin somewhere in central Turkey named Abram. And he and his wife, they had no children. And in a dream, he heard from a voice of God. And then shortly after that, no, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't work that way. Um, our story usually begins with us. It becomes a some realization on our part of, you know, I was doing these bad things, or I realized how broken I was, or I was incomplete or disconnected, or I had this distance from God, um, this emptiness. And then we talk about how we experience God provision, God's provision and understanding of his his sacrifice for us, and that he's allowed us back. He, he's allowed us into his family and renewal. That's very much our story, and it's not not a bad thing. I'm not not making a, a blanket judgment on people owning kind of their own story, but I find it fascinating that Paul, when he was given the nod to speak in the synagogue, didn't start with, I was on the road to Emmaus, and I had this bright light, and I met Jesus, and he didn't start with himself. He started with their story. He started with the story of the Israelites, this huge meta-narrative of the people coming out of Egypt. 
our cultural perspective is different. We are individualists. We're in an individual cult, individualistic culture. And that has shaped our ways of thinking and relating to just about everything. They were, uh, and by everything, I mean ourselves, the people around us, the world we live in, and even God. They were in a communal um, culture, and that would have shaped their understanding of themselves. So I know for me, I'm pulled to individual stories of bravery or hardship or overcoming. I don't know if anyone's read the book um, Educated or The Glass Castle, or I just finished a book called um, uh, I Am American uh, by uh, actually a local guy who came from uh, Somalia. There's something really engaging about those individual stories of overcoming and um, kind of growing up in terrible circumstances and we want the details but in Paul's short retelling of the 1400 years of history he looks at he only hits a few individuals and they're not highlighted as necessarily overly heroic um, he skips all of the horrible stories like he, he references Saul um, the, the king before David but he doesn't say much about him other than he was in the story and then there was David um, we're pushed or forced to consider in Paul's telling of the story, how we think about our story and how we think about our kind of the meta narrative. And then in relation to our um, individual uh, storyline. So if you remember my hinge sermon, um, you have, you have Jesus who, who is more than just a man. He isn't uh, just a hero. You have the man God, and he exists within and outside of our construct of space and time, but he interacts with space and time, and he reforms the ways that, whether we're individualistic or we're communal, we interact with God, with each other, with the people around us in the larger world around uh, the people around us and then the, the larger world around us. So Paul is offering these people and us the freedom from other meta narratives, the Jewish meta narrative, and he's offered us the ability to join this story. And his invitation goes from the big picture down to the small, where he says, Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you are not able to obtain under the law of Moses. So he says, There is a new story. So this statement, if you think about it, and this will lead to our, our next point unwinds the power structure of those um, biological Jews or those ancestral Jews. Uh, and I, I would argue it unwinds some of the power structures that we encounter as well. So we have a story, we have a narrative. It's not always or often pleasant, but it's a small paragraph or even a sentence in a much larger story of humans interacting with God. And this can be unsettling and unnerving to us as Western individualists. We want to be important. So back to the first point, how does your story fit into the larger story of history? And that is unsettling. And I'd recommend taking some time with some people around you to explore this. How does Paul in his sermon provide a tangible connection between the bigger narrative and the people around him and their personal stories? <clears throat> So now to the second point, which is what the heck happened at the end of this chapter? 
The text says that almost the entire town shows up to hear Paul and Barnabas speak. It's a packed house. The text says that when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse upon them. So what's what's not written? It it doesn't exactly say, but I think we can make a couple of educated guesses and summations from the text. So there was a small number of true ancestral Jews in the city, and there was a large number of converts or proselytes. Some of those converts were influential women who are married to the political and social elite of the city. If I'm Jewish by birthright, and I can influence the leaders of the community through the relationships I have through my my religion, my faith with them, I can manipulate them with access to to my belief because they they kind of need me. They're a convert. Um, And then I have the power, if if I'm cozied up with them, then I have the power over the regular folks. Uh, If my power base is rooted in ancestral Judaism, is being replaced by this story from Paul and Barnabas, this story of Jesus the Nazareth, who makes my devotion to the law and to the temple rules obsolete, then these converts don't really need me. And if they don't really need me, then I'm obsolete. And the people that I've been controlling through influence and special rules have been freed, and I lose my position of power. It sounds it sounds like something you'd see on like today's modern day news. Um, I touched on this a little bit in my last sermon, but it showed up again in this text when I was going through. When we lose control of the narrative we want, or when I lose control of the narrative I want, I can become incredibly anxious or stressed, and that is either going to lead to withdrawing and pulling back, or becoming very hostile to those people around me. In one week, the Jews went from hanging out with Paul and Barnabas and um, kind of being so excited that they had brought this this new extra Judaism to town to running them out of uh, to running them out of it in a week. So let's put the two two points together. Um, Humans like rules. If you think of our story, like we, we like to be we like to be in charge of our story. Humans like to control other humans. Um, one of the most compelling, I think, apologetic arguments for me today is that if you study Jesus' teachings and if you look at what he says through Paul's messages, you'll find very little in the way of humans controlling other humans. From the Sermon on the Mount to like family instructions in the, in the letters, you hear about loving and serving as Christ loved the church. And there's very little about one person exercising dominance over another. When my story and I need greater significance than the larger story of God, I'll want to control and I will want to be the God of my story. I think that was the, the thing that got Paul and Barnabas kicked out, is they, they, they pulled the, the power rug out from under these people. The Jewish leaders in the story, they saw their power base eroding, saw their story was going to be absurd, uh, usurped and kicked Paul and Barnabas out. So the end of the text, it says that Paul and Barnabas shook the dust off their feet, kind of like, yeah, have a nice day, and they went to Iconium. And it says they were filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. Why? Like, how could they be filled with joy? That was one of the questions I was asking myself. And it doesn't say, and this is why they were 
filled with joy. But you go back to the story, and there are two things I think that jump out. Is one, they saw God move in a town that almost the entire town came out to hear them on on week one. Like week week one, they just talked a little bit, maybe the the, the regular churchgoers. In week two, just through talking in and amongst the community, the whole town shows up. So I think it must have been exciting for them to see God moving throughout that whole town. The second, um, and there's something kind of cathartic about getting to the root of something, the root of a problem. And whether that's through like therapy, working on your wiring, or relationally, you've got this, this sticking point that you kind of keep bumping into. Or, or medically, like I was thinking, if you have a really deep splinter and you work at it and you can't get at it and then it maybe gets infected, but man, when you get that thing out, it feels so good. There's incredible satisfaction in getting to the root of the issue. I think in this story, they challenged the Jews control enough so that other people in town started to look at the whole Jewish system started to look at the way that their religion was practiced and realized that, you know, we don't, we don't need to do this temple thing anymore because the, the forgiveness, the, the temporary forgiveness that we're offered through these, these sacrifices is being offered in abundance through belief in this man, which goes to the root of the issue that that core is getting that, guilt and shame or that that incompleteness that brokenness to the surface and getting it out and instead of having to be reminded week after week after week go to the temple get an animal do the sacrifice over and over to be able to say once and for all i don't i can i can have that on a on a ongoing daily basis that would have been incredibly liberating for the people and i think it must have made the uh, Paul and Barnabas, uh, in spite of being abused and kicked out of the city, so excited to see that, like, yeah, the, um, the genie's out of the bottle. Like, the dam has broken. You can you can beat us up, you can kick us out of your town, but we already did our work, and we're out of the next train. And I, I can I kind of sense their their excitement at what the Holy Spirit was doing. Um, so to close, this is a. Uh, a story about a, a pastor who uh, was with us. I don't know. I, my years um, get jumbled up, but I want to say 10 plus years ago, his name was pastor Frederick, Bob Frederick. Um, he was in his eighties when he adopted our church and um, mentored about 50 different pastors in the, in, in Maine. Um, but one of his, uh, one of his, um, the word I'm looking for, prerequisites for adopting our church was that he needed to be invited over to dinner at least once a week. Um, so Stacy and I had him over for dinner uh, one night. And if, if you want to hear more about him, his sermons, I think, are still on our website. But in, in his um, kind of sitting around the table, he asked us about our spirit, spiritual heritage. And both of us related our stories of growing up. Stacy and I both grew up in the church um, in very, uh, in some ways, very similar, but in some ways, very different church communities. And they, they both had some positive elements and they both had some pretty destructive 
elements as well. So we're telling the story and it seems like when we tell our story, um, the pain comes to the top sometimes more than the, the pleasure. Sometimes the, the hard things come out more than the easy things. And we, we told pretty raw stories of our, our kind of faith journey, if you want to call it that. So at the end of the story, she was sitting there kind of uh, taking it all in. He says, oh, that's wonderful. And I think we were both a little bit shocked. Um, we talked about spiritual manipulation. We had shared about injustices that we'd experienced and ways that people had maybe um, misused uh, the Bible. And he replies that way, that way. But he read our expressions and he said, in spite of all those things, it was by the grace of God and the hand of God that we're able to, you're able to feed me dinner here in your kitchen in Wyndham. Uh, and I think about that in relation to this meta-narrative idea. Oftentimes, I get very stuck in my own head and in the circumstances of my day and in the circumstances of our, our um, kind of point in life right now. Uh, Jack's 19. Ezra's going to go off to the Air Force. Finn's in high school. We've got... Um, just, just life, and it's busy, and it's hectic, and it's like, are we winning, or are we losing, and I think about the, the songs that we sung this morning, and sometimes we apply this idea of faithfulness, and God's goodness to like, right now, how does it feel right now, but if you look at Paul's narrative, and what the narrative that we're being invited to, um, yeah, there's a lot of good, and a lot of bad, but if you look at the progression, and the progression of the story that we're invited into, I think we can see that we are we are being cared for. We are being uh, we are being held. We're being provided for, even through really difficult situations. Um, so as we come to communion, I want you to think about uh, for th those of you and I didn't uh, for those of us that um, would have liked to maybe celebrate Ash Wednesday this past Wednesday. Um, one of the one of the things they do is you get ashes on your forehead and it's dust. They remind you dust you are, and dust you return. And that's that is where all of our stories will end up on this side of uh, on this side of heaven or eternity. But Jesus is working with my story and your story to continue His story. So I'm going to pray and then we will have communion. God, I thank you that, uh, that you are in control. And by saying you are in control, um, it, it's such, it's so much more in control than we can get our heads around. And your scope and size and um, breadth is a lot more than I think we try to often narrow you down to and narrow your story down to. Uh, I pray that we would get get a picture of our significance in your story and that as individualists who, who need to feel like we're valued and, and um, cared for and, and worthy, give us what we need kind of in our daily bread column, but at the same time, help us to remember that yours is the kingdom on earth and in heaven. Uh, so help us today as we take communion and think about your larger story and think about 
um, the ways that the ways that we can um, maybe set people free as Paul and Barnabas did in this story. Thank you for your grace in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, Rob and Betsy are going to come around to your tables. Just let them know how many cups you'd, you'd like for communion. And if you're at home and you're taking communion, um, you're welcome to grab your own elements. Um, and I'll guide us through this. So wait till everyone... Um, Everyone has a cup and wafer. I do encourage you just to build on what Ethan just said. Thank you, Ethan. Um, Consider that the story of God pointed towards the cross um, as we take the bread and the cup, which, which point to the blood and the body of Jesus. So consider that big story consider that um, big story of the world and of humans and how your story fits into that as you as you take it this morning so i invite you now to i think everyone has one invite you to uh open open it up take out the wafer open up the cup let's take this together because we we are doing this together not individually i invite you to pray with me lord thank you for this space that we can be together in, that we can take bread and the cup together this morning. Lord, I pray that the truth of your big story would grip us as a community this morning. As we go out from here, that we would find ourselves in that story, in the grace and the love and the salvation and the goodness of that huge story. That story that Paul and Barnabas were faithful to proclaim so many centuries ago, and that story that has drawn us into this room and onto this Zoom call, even this morning here in Maine. Lord, I pray that we would be gripped again by the confidence of knowing that you reign, that your story is the story of a king and a loving king who is currently reigning. One God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.